Hello and welcome to another episode of the Authentic Path podcast. This is episode number four of season two, all about music. And on this episode, I interview Joshua Lee Turner, who is a multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, and producer based in Brooklyn, New York. Josh is best known for his YouTube channel, Josh Turner Guitar, on which he has about 500,000 subscribers. And he's been posting there since he was 15 in 2007. And he's been posting eclectic cover performances and original music since he started the channel. Josh now tours internationally in support of his own original music and with his longtime friend and collaborator, Carson McKee, as the folk duo, The Other Favorites. And super exciting, Josh is releasing his second solo album, Public Life, and it's coming out on August 7th. And so that's super, super exciting. And I personally am stoked, especially because I love his music. And actually on this episode, it was really fun to talk to him because he is one of those musicians who I've been a really big fan of for a long time. And being able to talk to your heroes is always really cool. So definitely grateful to him for coming on. And I really appreciate him taking the time. And I think this this episode was one of the hardest to do for me because I was kind of just like a fan person the entire time. But it was really interesting to talk to him and hear his story and get really deep into what it means to have integrity and authenticity as a musician. And I think Josh is like one of the most um, introspective people I've had on the podcast, which is kind of shocking to me considering how introspective everyone else has been. But yeah, I really, really enjoyed this episode. So without me blabbering more, I hope you enjoy it. This is Phelan Trigman Lash and this is the Authentic Path podcast. Enjoy. Three, two, one, zero. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Super excited to talk to you. Um, just give us a little bit of a brief overview of where you're at right now as a YouTuber and musician and what the projects you're working on are. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Phelan. Um, so right now, um, I'm working on my my YouTube channel, uh, which I'm always, always working on. Um, I've been at it for the past 13 years, and there's really uh, no end in sight on that. Um, and I'm, I'm also right now in the, in the process of releasing my second uh, full-length album of original music um, called Public Life, and I'm using the channel as a, as a way to roll that out. I'm trying to sort of integrate the two and uh, releasing this, the album one track at a time as, as separate YouTube videos. Nice. I didn't even think about that as like a strategic thing for you to do, but it makes sense to bring your Spotify following together with your YouTube following. So very smart. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or in, in this case, since my YouTube following is generally stronger to try and right. alert my YouTube following to the fact that I am even on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's interesting to me because I found your music uh, on Spotify. The first song I heard was 19 and aimless, which came out last summer. Mm-hmm. So I was 20 and it was pretty accurate to where I was at, at the time and um it's just like can you walk us through how you created that song and then released it when you were 27 as like from the perspective of being a young adult because I feel like that whole album is kind of from the perspective of being a young adult yeah so uh about the about the track 19 and aimless you know I um uh, I had gone for a lot of my creative life just having sort of resigned myself to the idea that I was not a songwriter um, and you know, and and it wasn't for lack of trying. Like I really, I really tried to figure out like what made the songs great by like the people that I love for a long time. Uh, and I just hated everything I tried to write. Um, and so then, but then in the in the fall of, of 2018, my sort of opportunities were starting to ramp up really quickly. I was starting to go on tour for the first time, and uh, 
And I, I, I was just kind of like, look, like you need to, you need to get over this and just like give it a shot basically. Um, so I decided I would, I was just going to like come hell or high water, write an album. And, um, and, you know, since I didn't really have a, a, an effective blueprint print for songwriting, I just started trying to write generally like prose. Uh, and I just started reflecting on, you know, some of my strongest memories from the past, basically. Um, I've, you know, I, usually I feel like the songs that tend to be the most lyrically successful are the ones that we feel an emotional connection to. And, and you know, and if, if I don't have an emotional connection to the text as the writer of the song, then how could a listener, I guess, was sort of my conclusion there. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I, I just sort of started rifling through the filing cabinets of, you know, emotionally impactful moments from my, my past. And, um, one of the easy standouts was, uh, was the summer of 2012, which I, uh, which was the summer after my freshman year of college in which I was, I was 19 sort of going on 20. Um, and, and all of the, all of the strange and formative things that happened that summer, you know, I just basically wrote that all out. And it was, I was sort of like freely associating, like what are some of the first images that come to my mind when I think about that? Um, and, and yeah, and then I sort of, I trimmed off, uh, some of the, you know, adjectives and prepositions that weren't important. And (laughs) that kind of became the lyrics to the song. Cool. It's like such an interesting lyrical song because I feel like all of the lines really connect, but not in like a direct way. So it's Mm -hmm. cool to hear you explain like how you made that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was when you were in college, you went to college for music, right? I did. Yeah can you kind of walk us through what it was like for you from like being a child and when you first started playing music and then how you like set your dreams at different levels of your life. So like, what was your dream when you were 10 and discovered music and then like 15 and then 20 and all of that? Um, well, my, my journey towards becoming a musician was, um, an unusual one. It was, it was my lifelong ambition, uh, from the age of roughly, I don't know, three until I was 18, uh, to be a car designer. Um, I, I had no, interest so in different. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I still have like an abiding love of, of, of cars and all things automotive, which living in New York city where it's not really practical to own a car is, you know, it's a shame, but we'll get there. <laughs> um, but so, uh, but so no, I mean, I, uh, but I, I did come from a musical family who exposed me to music early. You know, my grandparents were, were both musicians and, um, and so, so yeah, so I mean, I, I grew up, uh, I, was, I was put in choirs when I was uh, eight or nine. I started piano lessons around the same time. Um, I picked up guitar when I was 13 because my dad had started playing some of the folk music of his youth for me, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel and Crosby, Stills and Nash and so forth. And, um, and those recordings were impactful. And, um, and yeah, so it was, it was a comp, some com when I was around 13, it was some combination of probably of Paul Simon and, and Leo Kotke, the, the virtuoso 12 string guitar player who, who served as my inspiration to start trying to play the guitar, the, the literal catalyst, which, which is a story that I've had to tell, um, a lot of times is, is that my parents, uh, confiscated my PlayStation for a couple of weeks, <laughs> um, because they wanted me to find something better to do with my time, which, you know, all things, all things considered was probably one of their, um, more solid parenting moves um, of all time because because I, I I picked up the guitar during that period of time to try and keep myself occupied um, and uh, and so yeah so then just throughout high school I I was playing in bands and definitely 
was starting to form something of an identity around being a musician, even if I wasn't cognizant of it yet. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, it got right up until my senior year of high school. I was enrolling for art classes and, and getting ready to like apply to design colleges and things. And, um, and basically I kind of got cold feet at the last minute. Um, you know, felt like maybe some of my, uh, art skills weren't really up to snuff, you know, to be applying for colleges and so forth. Uh, so I, I wound up looking for a college that I could just have, uh, you know, a good general liberal arts experience at, and then maybe dip my toes into, you know, a couple of different things along the way if I was interested. So um, I I wound up choosing Butler University in Indianapolis, which is certainly not, certainly not prestigious for its music program. Um, but uh, it was, it was a college near where I had been born. So my, my parents sort of had recommended it to me and I knew that it was of the size that I was looking for, which is to say pretty small. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I just you know just like the vibe, and so I went there as a as a digital media studies major, which is one of those just like gotta have some skills out yeah. in the world. <laughs> Might as well be digital media, like so. Uh, that was that was my major, and and I minored in music, just you know because I thought like, well, this is one other thing that I find fun. Um, and uh, and so it became evident pretty quickly while I was there that like I was taking a lot of pleasure in the music classes and not much in the digital media classes, so. Um, about halfway through college, I wound up flip-flopping my major and minor. And uh, it really still, though, wasn't even until my, my senior year that the reality sunk in that this that it wasn't just going to be a fun, like, hobby for me mm-hmm. playing music. Mm-hmm. Which, like, in, in retrospect, this all feels ridiculous because, like, you know, my freshman year, I was already, like, uh, I'd, like I was playing in a folk band, like, outside of school. I was, like, directing the the men's acapella group, I was like, you know, singing in all these choirs, like I was doing all these things like, you know, it, it should have, it should have been obvious to me. Um, but it really was not at all. And, uh, and so it was sort of at my, uh, my girlfriend at the time who I'm still dating's urgings that, uh, she was like, you, like, you need to just like go be a professional musician. You like, this is clearly like, just like your thing, like you need to go do it. Um, and so I like sort of kicking and screaming, you know, realized that she was right. Um, my senior year of college when I was 22. <laughs> um, no. and, uh, and so, yeah, so that was, that sort of began the trajectory, like just in the, just in the nick of time. That was, that was the turning point from where it stopped just being something that I was doing for fun, you know, with friends and turned into like, okay, this is going to be the thing that I try and make money on. And that I'm going to be doing for a very long time. I mean, part of the reason that I was so reluctant about it, uh, was because I enjoyed music so much that I was afraid that doing like a conservatory like experience would ruin it for me. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I don't know what a conservatory experience would have been like for me. I don't know if I even could have gotten in. Um, but I am really grateful that I went to a college that allowed me to take as many classes outside of music as I wanted to basically, because in many cases those wound up becoming, um, some of my, some of my favorite classes and favorite professors and so forth. And, um, and all things considered, you know, I mean, it's like, I, yeah, I don't know that I, that I consider that a pretty defining part of my identity that like, I, I'm a musician, I love music, but you know, if I go to a party that doesn't have any other musicians at it, you know, I'm not just like standing in the corner being like, who wants to talk about, you know, right, right. harmony and triads and like whatever else, you know? So, um, so, so yeah, so that's, that is kind of where the, the musical, that's that was the long and winding path for me uh, of of 
realizing that that was what needed to happen, basically. Cool. It was nice because when you were talking about um, your girlfriend telling you you need to go be a professional musician, I was about to ask you if at the time you remember anyone telling you that you needed to go be a professional musician. So that worked out. Um, it's interesting on your path because it seems like a lot of the the turning points were kind of accidental for you, you know, or like almost retroactive. Like you looked at them and you were like, oh yeah, like obviously, right? But yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's like a Steve Jobs quote from his, he gave a speech at um, a commencement speech and it's like, you can only connect the dots in retrospect when you're looking backwards at your life. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's been true? And like, how has that shaped, you know, your trajectory forward and how you're taking your past into creating your future? Um, that's absolutely true in my case. I, I mean, it's very tempting for me where I am now, you know, in a place where I have done a decent amount of touring, like the, the channel has become like pretty successful, you know, um, it's very tempting for me from this vantage point to look back and say, oh, well, clearly, you know, A led to B, B led to C, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and now here I am. Um, but it never felt like that at, at the time, you know, and um, so, you know, it, it, as far as how it defines my path forward, I, I'm trying to, I try to continue to just, you know, I, I want to, it's, it's, it's tough because like, I want to be intentional about my career as a musician. I want to, uh, you know, I want to reach the widest audience that I, that I can, you know, I want to above all, you know, create work that I feel like has like integrity, like whatever that means. Like I, I want to create work that I can look back on when I'm 60 and say, you know, like I was doing the right thing, you know, when I put that out or whatever. Yeah. Um, and and so far in my life, like the way that I have done that is by, is by not looking 10 steps ahead, you know? Hmm. Um, so like, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a conundrum, right. Of like, you know, like I, I, like I want to do things that I'm proud of in the future and that continue to feel like they're part of this, this story. But what that may mean is that I have to, to an extent, continue to acknowledge the fact that I, that I'm not going to be totally in control of it. And that, that is what has led me well thus far, I guess. Yeah, that's a great answer. I want to kind of dig into what integrity means for you and how that plays into creating art that will last and be your legacy forever. Mm. Like, what does that look like in terms of how you decide what integrity is for you, Josh? Oh, man. That's, <laughs> that's a hard question. It is a hard question, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, I... It's it's actually a question that I fight with a lot um, because I mean I think uh, I think that part of what spurred me to want to write original music was a desire to to produce something of integrity I'm, and and for listeners I'm doing air quotes here um, that you know it's just like I, I, it's it's a it's just sort of a construct on on behalf of whoever is is talking about it, I think. But for me, it meant, you know, something that um, has at least uh, a kernel of originality, you know, in, in, in my experience on life that provides, you know, either, either comfort or whatever to, to some other people in the world, basically. Th those are sort of the two criteria of, of work that has integrity to me. Is, is something that has a, a, a sh at least a shred of an original thought to it um, 
that comes from me and can connect to other other people um, or other people can connect to it. Um, so, you know, the sort of elephant in the room of that statement is the fact that the vast majority of the work that I've released has been cover material. And so, you know, I've struggled a lot with like how that, how that fits in to, you know, the broader narrative of like, of, of my life as a musician, you know, of like what, what a musician's role is, you know, in the world, like, like what, what YouTube is, is good for and like, and so forth. And like, um, you know, for a long time, I, I think I had a lot of insecurity about the fact that, that most of my work was, was performances of other people's songs. Um, you know, because I think the one way that you could read that and one way that I occasionally would tell myself, you know, that was coming from, um, was just that like, I'm just like a copycat, you know, and that like, I, I can't, I don't know that there's just, I, I don't have the creative spark that I'm not as, I'm not as good as any of these people whose work I'm covering, basically, whatever good means, you know, that I don't have the integrity that they had yeah. uh, and the ability to create something, something new that other people can connect with. Um, and, you know, it's only been sort of recently that I have started to move away from that, that feeling and that insecurity and, and started to accept or, or justify or, or own the cover material that I've done um, because, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point now on my channel where I do in a funny way, have a niche carved out with, with the cover songs that I'm doing. And even if my goal is to perform a song absolutely as accurately as possible to the original recording, which is sometimes my goal, uh, you know, down to the, down to the, you know, recording techniques or whatever. Um, there's something, you know, so I studied classical music in college and, and nobody, <laughs> Nobody, nobody goes after a classical musician if they if they perform a piece of music correctly, you know. Right. And so, a lot of what I do, I think, is I try and approach, I try and approach popular music, uh, rock music, you know, blues, whatever, like like it's classical music. Um, and I and I I want to try and perform it in a way that that gets across the sort of the soul of whatever the original artist had. Um, you know, I, I want it to, I want it to f make the listener feel like the original song did. I think that's, that's what a successful performance of, of popular music through sort of a classical lens is. And, and so, and I don't know of many other people who are trying to do that right now, uh, of many other people who are, who are just saying like, no, I, I'm not going to try and change around this cover and make it my own, you know, because like that has its own risks, obviously. Like if you're going to, if you're going to change it, you know, if you're going to change a great song, like you got to be careful about that, you know? So it's like, for me, I do think that it's kind of a niche that I've carved out that, that has an integrity of its own, you know, in, in trying to honor the, the work of another artist and, um, you know, and, and if I can't create that little kernel of originality that, that other people can then resonate with, then at least I can, uh, convey it with, you know, some of the same intensity that, that people can feel when they listen to it. So, so that's 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 a very long answer um, to what to what integrity has has come to mean to me with with my work. Yeah, it's a good answer. Um, there's a song that I was looking at on your YouTube channel. It's uh, "Pink Moon" by Nick Drake, mm -hmm. and that song was just like nuts to me that you got it so accurately to like what his recording is because you know he was Nick Drake and not really one to be copied easily. Um, so I just thought that was really impressive. And it's, it's interesting when you talk about 
the insecurities that came up for you as you've been growing into like a full fledged independent musician, because I think that for so many of the people who've watched you along the way, like they would never say any of that stuff. Right. So it's like, and on the one hand, you see the meme of YouTube comments being like where the meanest people live, but not, mm. not on your channel, right? Like all of the people in your comments are some of the most like wonderful people. And I think that it's interesting that we can like so deceptively like self-sabotage ourselves yeah. just by saying like, we suck, like I'm so bad. I'm so unoriginal, like all of that stuff. And I was just thinking about this last night and how I used to like play soccer and I would always just like trash myself when I was playing and how that never ever supports yourself in actually being the best version of yourself. So it's really cool to hear that you've been growing out of those. How have you done that? Well, I mean, I think it's a fine line for, for anybody who is entering into a, um, you know, a life that is constantly under scrutiny. Uh, it's a it's a fine line between, you know, trying to avoid self sabotage while um, also not veering into the the realm of you know self aggrandizement. Basically, you know, I mean, when you have people in the comment section, you know, and and you're right, like m the the vast majority of of the comments on my channel are overwhelmingly positive and supportive. Um, you know, but, but you can, but that can get to you just as much as criticism can. Um, and, and so, it, you know, it, it can be a little bit of a balancing act between, you know, <laughs> basically trying to, to, to find and act out of a sense of self that is directly proportional to, <laughs> to what it should be. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. like the big challenge I think of, of being on YouTube. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm sort of constantly back and forth between these two things, you know, where it's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's a funny thing about having come up in an age where we were all told that we can like be whatever we want to be and like do whatever we want to do. Cause like, that's, that's great. And it's like, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that was just sort of like the ethos of, of my childhood at least. And I think of a lot of our generation. Um, but it also puts so much pressure on you, right. That if you're not being whatever, like if you're not being yeah. that dream, then, then like you're failing to some degree, you know, um, so that, that's definitely where that, that self-sabotaging thing comes from for me, you know, it's like, it's funny because I know that that was so much not the intent of our parents' generation, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't to, for it to be twisted like that, but it becomes this sort of bizarre motivator that's like, well, because I can be whatever I want to be, like, I better not squander it, you know? Yeah, um, totally. So, so yeah, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have a perfect answer and, and I, and I definitely find myself more on one side of the line or the other between, between self-sabotage and, uh, and, you know, a, uh, unnecessarily inflated sense of ego about, about having, I don't know, like, but how, how else can you, uh, it's, 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 I wish, I wish that I was totally immune to what other people thought about me and my work. Um, but at least at this point in my life, you know, I'm not. So. Yeah. This conversation that we're having right now is like, everything that I'm interested in, like about authenticity, integrity, self-sabotage, all of that. And what you were just talking about, how, how, when we were growing up, our parents and families were like, be anything, be what you want to be. I never thought about how that might connect to our mental health now and why I'm even like starting this podcast and wanting to like help coach people on authenticity. It's like, that is like the fundamental foundational thing that probably affected so many thousands of people in our generation yeah. into like thinking that we're not good enough because we're not doing our lives as authentic as we think we should be. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't really have a question. That was just like blew my mind when you said that. So it's cool. 
Um, I want to like, I guess, go away from that amazing concept of, of just talking about authenticity because we can circle back around to that later. And I want to just touch on your experience with Carson and uh, the other favorites. So how did you guys meet? And then what's been your journey together over the years? Uh, so Carson, um, I guess for, for the sake of listeners, is uh, my sort of longest musical collaborator. Um, we're in a duo together called The Other Favorites um, that, you know, have released a couple albums and do live streams and stuff like that. Um, but so Carson and I met um, backstage at our eighth grade talent show um, in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, Alexander Graham Middle School. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, you know, it really, it really could not have come, the two of us meeting could not have come at a more important moment, I think, in both of our lives um, because I had... So my, my dad uh, worked at an electricity utility company. And so we, we moved around uh, a couple of times when I was a kid uh, as, as a response to like mergers and acquisitions and so forth. And so I had only been living in North Carolina for about six months at the time that I was auditioning for the talent show. And I, I had moved the summer before eighth grade, uh, which, you know, for anybody who's ever been in eighth grade is a horrible time to move. <laughs> it's a horrible, a horrible time in general. <laughs> it's a horrible time in general and it's a horrible time to be in a new place and new yeah. school, you know, where, where friendships are already uh, entrenched, you know, insecurities are at their peak and so forth. And, um, and, you know, and Carson, I think for his part um, had, you know, as we would go on to find out, we were, we were really kindred spirits insofar as like we were unlike a lot of the people at our school and like, you know, not really easily defined by any of the like, tightly controlled like social groups that, that already existed there. And, uh, so yeah, so we, we met six months into that, that tumultuous for me, eighth grade year. And, um, and he, he went on and he played a Howie Day tune and I, I played a, a Davy Graham tune. And, uh, there was, there was actually a third guy in the audience, um, a, a mandolin player uh, named named Cole, and this was in North Carolina, where it's plausible that there is a mandolin player, you know, sitting in right. the audience. <laughs> um, and and he he was the one who got both of our phone numbers and asked if we wanted to get together and jam. So um, we we got together and, and hung out, and our musical tastes were just just close enough that it that it worked, you know, even if they weren't exactly the same. Carson was definitely a little bit more like pop leaning, but had grown up on, you know, Dylan and, and a little bit of old time country music. Cole was a straight ahead bluegrass guy. Um, and I, I was really deep into like the sixties British folk revival, but you know, was just starting to sort of dip my toes into the bluegrass world. So, um, so yeah, so that, that was in 2007, early 2007 that we all got together, I think for the first time. And, um, yeah, and we all just really hit it off. I mean, um, we, you know, I think we were all of a pretty similar temperament, and um, and ha- and it was so rare at that age to find, and especially at that time, like because acoustic music, you know, bluegrass music and things have, have really seen a lot more attention in the last ten years or so. Um, but in two thousand and seven, very rare in high school to find people who are into that sort of thing. Mm. Um, you know, there was you know, like there was a battle of the bands at our school and it was even a joke. Like we, 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 as a joke, decided that we were going to enter battle of the bands and work up a bluegrass rendition of crazy train because like, because every awesome. other, every other band was a metal band in, in battle of the bands, um, you know, or like, or like prog metal or whatever. And, uh, so yeah, so the three of us, you know, we were this little Island of, of folk music basically in a, in a very big high school. And, um, 
And, uh, you know, it, it was, it was always just sort of a fun thing for us. Um, we, we enjoyed recording, we enjoyed jamming, but it had basically zero ambition whatsoever. We was just sort of in it for the fun of it. I mean, it, you know, it followed a similar trajectory to my own personal experience, basically. I mean, they're very intertwined. Um, and so then we went to, when we went to college because we weren't really taking it that seriously, it was just like, well, like that's been fun. All right. Like catch you, you know, catch you on <laughs> yeah. the flip side. Basically we all went to three different schools, three different majors, um, Cole, uh, the mandolin player, sort of sort of bowed out of the band uh, amicably at that point. But Carson and I, um, he went to Carolina and uh, studied English, uh, continued to try and get together whenever we were back in town and so forth. And, and there are some videos from that time period, uh, from the 2011 to 2015 time period, that would make it look like we were together more than we actually were. Because in fact, every time we got together, we would record a couple of videos. Gotcha. Um, but... So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, we stayed on good terms and, and then when we both graduated, it was sort of this, you know, big question in the air of like, well, we're going to, like, we're going to do this thing. Like we're going to try and make this work, you know, because by that point, the, the YouTube channel and a lot of the videos that we'd made had kind of snowballed. And, um, and we even had this crazy experience in 2015, right before we graduated, where we had done a cover of Larger Than Life by the Backstreet Boys, um, on banjo and guitar. And two of them had seen it and, uh, and asked us to perform with them uh, for, wow. their, for their induction ceremony into the Kentucky Music Hall of Fame, which I, I didn't even know that that existed. But so, but so yeah, so we wound up um, working up quartet arrangements with, with Brian and Kevin of the Backstreet Boys of, of Larger Than Life and, uh, and I Want It That Way with banjo and guitar. <laughs> um, That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, so, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of like, like what we, what we probably needed to do was sort of like nipping at our heels a little bit, you know, it was like, it was starting to become like more and more apparent, you know, with things like that happening and so forth. And, um, you know, but I think we were both just well afraid of failure. And so like, and so reticent to start until we felt like we had a really good shot. And so, um, so I, I moved to New York a year after college, um, to, to start to try and pursue a different band actually that I was in at that time that I had, that I had formed during college. Carson went and taught English in France for a while. And, um, and then when he returned, you know, it was basically like, well, like Josh is in New York. Like, I guess that's like my prospect, you know, at this point, or at least my strongest prospect. And so, uh, so yeah, so he moved to New York. Um, the first band that I'd moved here with my college band didn't, didn't really pan out. And, uh, but Carson, Carson hung around and in, and then, and that was in fall of 2016 and then in fall of 2018 uh we wound up connecting with a, a booking agent through another youtuber friend of ours and uh it's just kind of been non-stop since then very cool yeah um one of the things that you talked about briefly is the fear of failure and what that like stopped you guys from releasing music and you know just kind of making it happen and going in on it but it's interesting to hear me or to hear you say that because for me like when i look at your your story, there's so many points along the way that you could have bowed out to fear of failure, right? Like even just trying out for the talent show in eighth grade, right? Like that's something that I didn't do because I was too afraid. So how have you over and over again, like defeated the hurdles of fear in your life and kept going towards what you want? Well, I mean, I think that it's come from a couple of different places at different times. Um, you know, in the case of the eighth grade talent show, when I was talking about the, the balancing act between, you know, between self-sabotage and, and, you know, runaway egotism, 
um, that was definitely motivated more by the <laughs> by the egotism side of things. You know, I, I think I was I was of a pretty firm conviction that I was that I was the best guitar player in, in eighth grade at that school, which you know is neither here nor there. But so but so to me, it was just like well, like uh, yeah. time to let these <laughs> time to let these uh, these luddites know who Davy Graham is. You know, uh, that yeah, that's that's not the word I'm looking for. Yeah, these uh, what's the uh, uh, these these ignorant people, you know, I was, I, I was I was I was very like yeah these yeah, yeah. these students know who who Davy Graham is. That was definitely where that was coming from, and it was like also just like a little bit of bitterness about like like yeah, I bet they're gonna hate this some like real music, you know, <laughs> very petty, right, very right. petty. Emotion, you know, it's eighth grade, um, but you know, and then in the case of uh, in the case of something like you know moving to New York to to pursue music. Um, I mean, to the extent that I, that I did that, it was really grudgingly. Um, and it was, and it was like, like definitely, definitely the fear of failure was, it was very strong and it, and it, and it almost could have, could have been preventative of that, I think. And, you know, I mean, having, having supportive voices around me in my life was, was definitely a big part of that. Um, you know, I mean, my, my parents, my parents in this moment, you know, actually went a step beyond saying you can do whatever you want to do and, and said, I really think that you should do this, you know, which was significant. Um, and, uh, and my, my girlfriend as well was, was a huge voice in that. And, uh, and, you know, and I, and I also knew, I knew that I knew that to an extent I would be, that I would languish if I was, if I was to spend my life in Indianapolis as a, as a professional musician, you know, I, I, I know, and, and, and this is not to, this is not to, demean any of any of my friends from college who've stayed in Indianapolis and and chosen to pursue that path you know I mean many of them have become uh, music teachers and uh, you know and I have a deep admiration for for what they've chosen to do but you know for one reason or another like I think that their skills are are really well suited to that and and I just would not have I would not have been happy in that in that context you know so yeah um so, uh, so, so yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely come from a couple of different places. I mean, there's also, I think, um, at times have, there's been like a duty, a duty aspect to it, um, in a funny kind of way, like where, uh, you know, so like, audi- like auditioning for like the men's acapella group at, uh, at, at college or whatever. It's like, you know, I loved, I loved singing or whatever, but then like, you know, I, uh, when I was asked to, to be made the music director, it was like in in my perspective, like I just cared a lot about the group and I cared a lot about the music and it was, and it was clear that there was not really anybody else for the job. And so it was like, all right, like I'll take it, you know? Um, So it it can come from different places. I think, you know, getting, getting, getting over that hurdle. And sometimes, sometimes it's easy and obvious and comes from, you know, a noble place. And sometimes it comes from a petty place (laughs) and sometimes it barely happens at all. Um, But, you know, I mean, I, I have, I've, been through the experience enough times now to know that taking a risk is, has, has usually paid off. So that makes it a little bit easier every time. Yeah, that's super cool. I think that uh, one of the things that you probably don't think about yourself very often is like how young you are still and like how much life there still is to live. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about while you were talking about the talent show also is like it's reminiscent of John Lennon and Paul McCartney and like mm-hmm. how the Beatles got together. Um, not that that's like how your story has gone, but well, not so far anyway, but I think it's like, it's interesting just to think about, you know, when you can get the repetition of facing fear so often by the age of 28 or however 
like as a young person, right? Like throughout the next 20 or 30 or 40 years of your life, like that's going to come up over and over and over again, but it's like building the muscle to keep going and to act in spite of the fear and be, be courageous. It's just like the sooner you can invest in that as a person, I think the more valuable it is over the course of your life. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I, I think that a perfect, a perfect little example of that is, is, is performing itself, like actual live performing. Um, I, I definitely think of that as being like a muscle because, um, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people like, so my sister, for instance, like works, uh, you know, works in like an office job where occasionally she has to like, you know, speak for like a large number of people. And it's just like, it's one of her greatest fears. She, she really hates it. And like, she, she, she's been working at it. She wants to get better at it, but she doesn't have to do it all that often. And, uh, and so it's just like the worst, you know, for her. And, um, and there was a time where getting on stage and, and, and being in front of people was, I felt that way, you know, I mean, I, I remember at that eighth grade talent show, for instance, like I could barely play, like my, my hands were so like <laughs> dissociated from the rest of my body. I was like, what am I doing up here? Like I, you know, I'm making a fool of myself. Um, and I think anybody who's ever been on stage has felt that feeling at some point. Um, but it is truly like a muscle because like, you know, uh, I've been on stage now more times than I can count in my life. And, uh, and last year I toured for pretty much the whole year straight. I probably played, I don't know, a hundred dates or something like that, you know, all over the world. And by the end of it, it's, it's totally second nature, you know, it's, it's totally second nature to, to get up on stage and, uh, and to, and, you know, you're aware of the fact that like there, the stakes are kind of high and everybody's watching you and like whatever, but, but it's, it's, um, you're so much more in control of that knowledge uh, and, and you can channel it into a compelling performance rather than letting it control you, you know, uh, and, and turn your fingers into spaghetti noodles yeah. while, you're, while you're up there. Um, and, and every time that I take a extended break from touring, I'm sure I'll definitely feel it once I finally get back on the road. Um, the first couple of shows, they, 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 they like spook me a little bit, you know, it's just like, woof, you know, um, in, in a way that would never happen if I was in the middle of a, of a run of shows, you know? Right. So, so it, it's, it's definitely like putting yourself out there and taking risks is a, is a practice, you know, and, and getting on stage is a, is a perfect little microcosm of that. Yeah. I'm interested in, in, uh, how you maintain your authentic identity when you go on stage and if that has changed or you've been challenged on that over the years, because I think like um, a, musician, a musician who I've gone to see is John Craigie, who actually I'm wearing his shirt, but uh, he is a folk singer and he's just like so good on stage and he'll just have conversations with the audience members and you can tell that he's just like a human. But then there are other people who just like go up and they do the same act that they did the last night and they're like begrudgingly on stage, right? But it's like their job. And mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering like how you connect with the heart of yourself when you're presenting yourself in front of people and if that's changed over the years? Um, well, you know, it's something that I've thought about a lot. Um, and it's, it's sort of something that I am delving into on, on this album. I mean, the reason that I, that I called the album that I'm currently releasing public life is because as a musician and particularly as a musician who records and films at home extensively, um, very little remains private, you know? Um, and, mm. and that's, you know, it's true. It's, it's true as well when you're on stage and, and it's this, it's this tough thing where, you know, what people 
want, or at least what I understand people to want out of out of me or almost any musician is the ability to see something authentic, you know, and the ability to say like, this is just a, this is a real guy who's just like getting up there and like, you know, telling his stories and like, whatever. Um, you know, that, that's, that's what I want. You know, if I go to see a show, I don't, I don't want, I don't want some person who looks like they're spouting the same thing they said for the last 50 nights on tour, you know? Um, but, but there's always an element, but it's still a performance basically. Right. Anytime that you're on stage, it's inherently, you're, you're performing a version of yourself, you know? Um, anytime I'm in front of a, a camera at home, I'm, I'm performing a version of myself. You know, it's, it's a selective, it's like a selective reality, basically, um, that, you're, that you're tailoring for your audience. Um, and so, yeah, so when I get on stage, I try and, I try and speak to people as if I know them, you know, I try and, I try and have a rapport with Carson. If he's with me, that would be as if we're sitting in our living room, you know, but I don't know them and we're not sitting in our living room. And so there's always going to, there's always, there's always a little bit of like suspension of disbelief required, I think, you know, to, to enjoy that as a, as a fan. And, and in the nights where, you know, we're feeling good, the audience is feeling good. Like, there's, there's no question about it. Like, it just feels, it just feels like it, you, I don't know. It's like, how, yeah, how do you, how do you define authenticity? You can just feel it, right? Like I'm not having to work to present a version of myself to the audience. It's just like, I, I'm just, I'm just up there and I'm performing. I don't want to say without thinking, but like yeah. without having to think about what the audience thinks of me, you know? Right. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know. But then, but it's so tough though, because like you, you 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 do have to be selective about what you choose to give away to the audience yeah, because yeah. like Carson and I like one of the sort of hallmarks of our shows is that afterwards we always um stand at the merch table for basically as long as people want and uh meet people shake hands you know sign things whatever and uh i you know i have so many people who come up to the table and say like i feel like i've known you since you were a kid you know like or like i feel like i've watched you grow up um and, and it's tough because like, on the one hand, that means I've succeeded, you know, in, in making this person feel like they're really connected to me and they really know me. But on the other hand, there's a part of me that wants to say, but you don't, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and I don't want you to act like, you know, me, right. Like yeah, it's my yeah. job to act like I know you, but you know, when people like, or they'll just like throw their, throw their arm around you, you know, or whatever, or just like, you know, or just like start like asking personal questions or whatever. And it's like, nope, like, like you've taken, like I, I've taken it too far or they've taken it too far at this point, you know, um, hmm, yeah. of like, of this, this sort of selective authenticity thing that, that is an innate part of being a performer. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's so interesting. I've actually never thought about it from that perspective, but that must be really tough because yeah, like you said, it's your job to make that kind of connection, but only in one direction because then it's like uncomfortable and weird. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't want to know. It's like, a, yeah, it's, it's like a two-way mirror, you know? Um, yeah, right. And, and, and people have been watching me grow up like through this two-way mirror for however long, you know? Um, but it's and, only into like one room of your house. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's, and it's only into the version of myself that I've chosen to put on the internet basically, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, yeah. It's, it's a weird thing. <laughs> yeah. I'll bet. 
do you ever find yourself so there's a song on your new album called uh 319 which i think is about touring right mm-hmm. yeah do you ever find yourself kind of dissociating your real self from your performative self in your life and then how do you like grapple with that i don't think that i don't think that i have ever felt fully fully dissociated between my my performing self and my my sort of other self yeah, i mean maybe it's I, too strong a word well i mean i i, I know what you, i know what you mean i know i know what you're getting at but i mean um i do have to you know i do have to flip a switch in my brain definitely when i'm when i'm at home versus when i'm on tour and and the way that tour feels to me you know i've toured in a couple of different contexts now you know whether whether I'm driving the car, planning the routing, booking the hotels, like doing everything, or like in just a couple of tours I've been lucky to do where like, you know, we're on a big coach bus and it's totally like we get pretty diems and like everything. You're, you're, you're still at work the whole time. Right. Um, you know, it, it, like any time that you're surrounded by your colleagues or, you know, there's somewhere that you're accountable for being, you're, you know, you're on the clock basically constantly. And, um, and so there's definitely a, a switch that flips in my mind and I, and I see the world differently and I think differently and I, I behave differently in that mode. Um, and, and it, and it, it can be difficult definitely, especially when I'm trying to reconnect um, with, you know, my girlfriend or people who are, who are outside of that realm, you know, and, uh, and that's specifically what 319 is, is about is like, um, it, I have to, I have to unflip that switch for a period of time to like get on the phone, right? you know? And, and it, for instance, if I'm about to go on stage, you know, and I'm, I'm in that mode of like intense focus, you know, about like, this is what I have to do. Um, I'm probably going to be like an unpleasant person to talk to and I'm going to be emotionally inaccessible because like, I'm, 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 I don't know. It's like, I, I just have to, there's, there's like, I have to put the walls up a little bit, you know, like, in like yeah. what, we, in like what we were just talking about. I have to, I have to be on my guard kind of, um, you know, so, um, so yeah, so that can be, that can be really challenging. Um, definitely like trying to engage that mode and disengage that mode, you know, it, it can't always happen sort of at the drop of a hat and it can occasionally be, um, painful either for myself or for other people. Um, you know, but I, I wouldn't necessarily like, but it's not, it's not a, it's still a part of me though. You know, it's not, yeah, it's not right. like, it's not, it's not a false persona. I mean, it, it, it is, it is a, it's a side of who I am. Um, so, you know, so I've just been, it, it's taken practice to just navigate that and like, and, and, and accept that like that person is important in that context and like, isn't, you know, isn't just like, doesn't exist to just like be an asshole to like people at home and like people I care about, but, but it's just like, there, there's a, there's a time where this approach to life is important. And then there's a time where it really is not acceptable, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and just like knowing, knowing where the, where the difference lies is, yeah, has been an ongoing process. Yeah, for sure. Sounds tough, <laughs> but I mean, it's like also really cool. So um, I have confidence that just after this conversation, you will be fine in the future because of the amount of time you put into thinking about integrity and authenticity and how to serve those around you. So I think like those are the important questions to ask in any any situation in life, but especially when you're well known by people. So thank you. Yeah, not worried. Um, 
I want to kind of just like bring it a little bit more to a lighthearted part of conversation and just ask like what other things you're interested in because I found that a lot of musicians who I've talked to you are actually interested in like a ton of other things like you said cars earlier so like just quickly some what are some of your other passions that you don't really talk about as much um well yeah I mean you know cars cars can't really be overstated if you were to look at like my my watch history on YouTube it's like probably 50% automotive channels Um, (laughs) that's awesome and uh you know I uh I finally just got out of New York a little while ago and my, uh, was, was able to go visit my parents, uh, for a little bit in, in Indiana. And, uh, and they have a, a red 1968 Volkswagen Beetle that, uh, was my great grandmother's originally. And I grew up in that car. I learned to drive stick shift on that car. Um, and so like, it just like, it's like, it's like in the Grinch, you know, where his heart grows three sizes, like every time nice. I like be around <laughs> that thing. Um, that's, that's what it feels like. So, uh, Another, another, another passion of mine, uh, of the past couple of years has been, uh, cooking actually. Um, and I tried to reflect that a little bit in the, in some of the videos for this album that I'm putting out, you know, since it's sort of set at home and it's supposed to, you know, be at least some curated form of authenticity. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I really like, like, like roasts, like things that will just like cook over a long period of time. I don't know. And I just like, I, I, there's nothing I love more on like a Sunday afternoon, especially if I've been doing music stuff all week, then I just like do a recipe that just like is needlessly laborious and takes a very long, <laughs> takes like a day or two. Cool. Um, you know, it's like eating the meal is, is, is great, but it's definitely just like the process of cooking is a very Zen, is a very Zen thing for me. Yeah. And a lot, it, it's actually, you know, if it, it feels a lot like the music making process to me, you know, where it's like, you know, it's almost like the meat, like the, the dish itself, like the final dish is like, is like a recording or it's like the performance, you know, and like cooking it is like the arranging process and the rehearsal process, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, you know, where it's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to overextend the metaphor, but I, I think they, cool, yeah. they scratch a sort of similar itch for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, beyond that, um, I, I enjoy reading. I don't, I don't read enough. Um, my, my uh, my girlfriend worked in the literary world for a long time, so we've always got sort of the latest and greatest uh, literary fiction floating around the apartment. Um, cool. So that's something I've been enjoying. Read a book a little while ago called uh, called Severance um, by an author named Ling Ma that um, interestingly was written before COVID, but is is about what New York would be like if there was uh, wow. if there was a pandemic. Um, and they're talking about like N95 masks and like you know and working from home and all this stuff, and it's like startlingly startlingly prescient um but uh yeah that's 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 mostly what i get up to and then you know and then carson and i hang out a lot in a non-professional context and when we both uh are sort of audiophiles we've got turntables and stuff and so we love just sort of trading records and uh, and talking about talking about music production you know over over time and things like that and we're, we're the type of people who like could riff for like five minutes on a joke about like the way that a snare drum sounds on a particular recording. That's like, <laughs> that's just like our like sense of humor, I guess at this point. So <laughs> yeah, I guess when you spend so much time in music, you just become like inebriated with it. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Um, I have a question. We're running out of time. Do you have like 10 more minutes or five, 10 more minutes? Yeah, it's fine. Cool. Um, I'm curious, like if there's a question that you've never been asked in an interview that you really wish someone would ask you. I actually saw that when you sent these questions over earlier and, uh, and I thought about it and I, th- the short answer is no, I don't, I don't think okay. I have such a question. Um, I, I, I appreciate you asking, but, uh, but I, I continue to be 
pleasantly surprised by the questions that people ask me, including yourself. So no, I, I don't think cool. so. That's nice. That's good to hear. Um, I last The last podcast I did, someone at the end was like, oh, you missed this big thing. And I was like, oh, shit. So I just wanted to make sure. Um, cool. So just to wrap up then, what you answered this earlier and you said like you can just feel it when you're being authentic, but I want to kind of flesh it out a bit because that's the point. Um, so how do you know you're being authentic and what does it mean to you to be authentic? It's such an abstract word, right? Like, you know, I obviously like it's sort of the, it's sort of the, uh, ethos of of your podcast and what you're what you're getting at, but um, you know, I'm inclined to think that almost everything is is authentic. Almost everything that we do is is authentic. You know, I mean, as somebody who has made a life in large part performing other people's music, I have to have a pretty broad definition of what authenticity is. You know, um, but. I generally think that if uh, if you're doing something and it and it and it feels good, <laughs> basically, then it's authentic. You know, I mean, I, I think if there's nothing if there's nothing that sort of catches in your stomach about like, you know, like like oh this feels like kind of weird or like yeah like you know or or whatever, then like then it's authentic. I mean, you know, I, I think that it, it can it can look like different things and it can mean different things in, in different contexts, like on stage, like we were talking about, you know, I mean, I think if you're not having to think about what to say between songs, you know, if you're, if you're not having to, to think, uh, should I play that like here? Should I not play that like here? You're probably being authentic, right? It's like, um, it's like, it's, it's, it's a buzzword, but it's like the state of flow type of thing, you know, the yeah. about, right. Like, um, obviously, you know, nobody's lucky enough to, to, to be in a state of flow every time you get on stage. Um, and there are some nights where you really have to, you know, my, if I've done my job well, you know, from audience to audience, nobody can ever perceive a difference between how I feel. <laughs> like right, right. I, I would love, I would like, I would love for every audience to be of, of, of a full conviction that what I'm experiencing is authentic. But the reality is that, that some nights, I have to put in work to make it to make whatever I'm doing seem like it's just coming straight out of the heart, you know, like it's all totally second nature. Um, because I know that there are some nights where it does feel like that. Um, there, there are some nights where it just, it's the easiest thing in the world. The set's over in five minutes, you know, feels like it's over in five minutes. And like, and that, that has to be authenticity for me, you know, is, uh, is, is the, is the performances where, uh, you just, there's no hesitation, you know, you just, yeah, you, you, and, and the audience, like the audience is right there with you. Um, it, you know, it, there's, I, I feel like there's no way to describe an abstraction, b- but with other abstractions, I guess. Um, yeah. but, but yes, I mean, with, with performing, that's, that's what authenticity is. And, and just with, with music in general, it's, uh, maybe an even harder question because I, I think that every musician and really every artist is struggling for their whole career to get at what it is that sets them apart from every other person that's tried to do what they do. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are so many people like, you know, uh, Van Gogh or, or like, uh, or, or Beethoven or whatever, where you're like, Oh, it's so obvious. Like, that's a Beethoven piece. Like it screams Beethoven, like, or that's a Van Gogh. Like nobody 
did flowers like that or whatever. Um, and I think that they, they probably reckoned with that as well at times. And I'm sure totally. that, there, there, that there were other artists that, that they were inspired by and maybe were trying to emulate. But the magic moment is when, is when people stop saying, oh, this looks like blah, 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 or this sounds like blah, 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 you know? And that's the moment that I think that, that you become authentic. Like, you know, Beethoven had dozens of influences, but he just added this little thing to it that like made it be Beethoven. Um, you know, so that's, you know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's what I'm working towards. And that's what authenticity is, is for me is, cool. is, is trying to leave a, is trying to leave a legacy that, uh, is at least a little bit unique, you know? And, and I, and I think that that can be, that can encompass cover music as well as original music. You know, if you're, if you're performing covers in a way that nobody else has, you know, if you're putting a unique stamp on an existing composition, then that can have as much merit as, as something that you've created yourself, I think. And, um, so yeah, it's just, it's like, no, no idea is ever truly original. Um, but, but when you can take the sum of your, the sum of your influences and, uh, and refract it through your own identity in a, in a way that feels just even a tiny bit new, um, then that, that tiny 5% or whatever, that's authenticity. Yeah. I love that. I was going to say regurgitate, but you said refract, which is a way better word. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's beautiful. It's kind of like the collective intellectual and spiritual evolution of humanity, really. Basically. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which is to, awesome. To, to feel like you have, to feel like you have contributed to that, I think is to have been authentic. Yeah. That's dope. Awesome. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. I um, want to give you an opportunity to share where people can find your work, um, all of the different places that you might want to connect with people. So yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, so you can find me at uh, Josh Turner Guitar on YouTube. There is a uh, country singer with a beard and a very low voice <laughs> who will possibly come up as the first search result. I'm working on that, but <laughs> uh, I am I am the clean shaven one. Um, I uh, am on Spotify as Joshua Lee Turner, uh, which is my my full name. And you can also find the music of the other favorites on Spotify um, under the other favorites. Our, our, the other favorites music is on my YouTube channel as well. And I'm also on Instagram at uh, Joshua underscore Lee underscore Turner. Perfect. Oh, Josh and, is- my, and, my, uh, and my new album, Public Life, will be out on August 7th, available everywhere for streaming and on CD for those who still have it. And there's a vinyl that is in the works uh, that I'm getting the test pressings of today, actually, and the release is coming, but it's TBA. Cool. Super exciting. Yeah, I'm so, so excited to listen to the new album. I've listened to most of it, I think, already. Yeah. But um, yeah, cool. Josh, this has been honestly such a good conversation. I think that we've delved into like really important topics, and I really appreciate your vulnerability and, and authenticity and integrity in answering the questions. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me, Phelan. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to that episode of the Authentic Path podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it and I loved hearing Josh's story, so I hope you did too. It would be awesome and it would make such a huge difference if you could take one minute or two minutes and just go review the show on Apple Podcasts on the app. It makes a huge difference to listenership and to me in my life, so I really appreciate you doing that. And without further ado, which is I think the thing that I say most on all of my podcast episodes, 
I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and that you learned something today. And as always, stay authentic to you. This is your host, Phelan Sugarman-Lash, and I'll see you next time.